morning again. Hey, let's celebrate that, that baptism again. Man, love hearing stories. And, and Merry Christmas to everybody. I hope you are getting into the holiday season and it's all going well for you. Uh, grab your Bibles. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. We're continuing our se- Christmas series called Christmas Unfiltered. Christmas Unfiltered. Seeing Christmas the way that it was so that we can experience the way that it is and supposed to be in our life. And this morning, I want to talk to you about hope in the dark. Hope in the dark. Let's think about that word hope for a moment. Webster's Dictionary defines hope like this. It says that hope is a desire for something or, uh, to happen or to be true, a desire for something to happen to be true. And so when you think about this concept of hope, a kind of a worldly hope is more like wishful thinking, like I, I hope I get the job, not certain that I will, but I hope I do, or I hope um, whoever's sick gets better, not, not guaranteed that that's going to happen, but I really hope that they do, or I hope my team wins whatever game they're playing. And so the world's hope is more of wishful thinking, like I would like for this to happen, I have no way of knowing if it's going to happen, but that's not biblical hope. That's not gospel hope, the hope that we have. So what, what kind of hope do we have? Let me give you a definition of biblical hope. Biblical hope is a Holy Spirit-empowered, joy-filled expectation that the eternal good God has promised in Jesus, that what he has promised in Jesus will come to fruition even when I don't feel it. It's a supernatural hope. It's this this confidence of going, look, I know that God is good, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I know that everything that he has promised that is mine in Christ, it will come to fruition. It doesn't matter how I feel about it. It doesn't matter what I see, that my hope is is anchored in and is resting in him. And and that's what we're gonna look at this morning, hope in the dark. uh, I was thinking about that whole concept of hope in the dark as a kid, I remember one of my favorite things to do was to hunt with my dad. And uh, so we, my dad, would, we'd get all of our gear together and we'd go get on a deer stand. And when I was younger, uh, I would sit with him on the stand and he would hunt and I would just go with him and that was all, all great. But then there was that day where I was uh, getting older and my dad would say, well, it's time for you to go hunt by yourself. And so I, I was... Uh, pretty young at the time. And so I remember the first time we went out, going in the morning wasn't so bad because my dad would walk me to the deer stand. He would have his flashlight. He would put me on the deer stand and the sun would come up and all was well. But when I hunted in the evenings, that was a whole different story because I would go to the deer stand and get on the, on the deer stand and I would, I would be up there in the rule at our family. I don't know if you're a hunter, you may understand this. Uh, at our, at our, the way we did it, at our, our hunting lease or whatever was you hunted until after dark. In fact, typically 30 minutes after dark, because the best time for hunting is right before dark, and so you would stay out there until uh, dark 30, 30 minutes after dark. And I'll never forget, as a kid, the fear and terror I would experience as I watched the sun go down and the light disappear. I remember thinking to myself, like, like uh, imagining things, like every time I was in the dark in that moment, I was imagining every sound was something trying to get me. And it's like, and it felt like it was right there. It's like the darker things got, the louder the woods got. And then I would see the wind maybe blowing the trees. And every time my imagination would go to like, it's, it's an animal trying to get me. And then the coyotes who were probably seven or eight miles away, it was like they were in my lap. And I literally remember just sitting there shaking. But here's what would happen inevitably. I would be looking the direction of the trail that my dad walked me down because I know he's gonna come back. And as I'm sitting there in the dark, 
terrified because of the darkness around me, I would get a glimmer of hope whenever I would see in the, in the, in the distance a flashlight appearing through the trees. And my dad would be walking toward me on the trail coming up, and the closer he got, the larger the light was and the brighter the light was. And the closer he got, the more the fear and the anxiety and the, 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 the imagination that I had in that moment began to go away because my dad was coming. So there was something about the light in the darkness that gave me hope in the midst of my fear and my stress and anxiety. And that's what I wanna look at this morning. I want us to see how Jesus, the light of the world, showing up in the Christmas season that we're celebrating, him coming on the scene, how that light entering into the dark world that we're in brings us hope today. So if you got your Bibles, let's go to Isaiah chapter nine. Isaiah chapter nine, if you're there, say the Bible is true. So what I'm about to read to you is a prophecy that Isaiah uh, wrote and spoke about the coming of Jesus 700 or so years before his arrival. And I want you to listen to the hope that he's writing about here in Isaiah chapter nine. Start reading in verse number one. He says, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in what? In darkness have seen a great what? Light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest as they were when the glad, glad when the, they divide the spoil. Verse four, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulders and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the, of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, this passage of scripture right here is, is, a, is a section or a portion of some of the most quoted verses of scripture throughout uh, the Christmas season. In fact, some of you are probably disappointed because I didn't get to verses five and six, or six and seven rather, which is some of the favorite because it talks about him being called wonderful counselor and mighty God and everlasting father and prince of peace. And it talks about the government he's bringing in. And we're gonna get to that toward the end, but, but oftentimes those favorite Christmas verses get lost when we don't understand the full context of the verses that lead up to them. Because what you find in Isaiah chapter nine, this great verse that we have uh, pictures in, in, in different decorations of our home this holiday season with our favorite parts of this, this passage, this passage is rooted in darkness. It's rooted in despair. It's rooted in fear and terror and uncertainty and unknown. And what I wanna do is kinda take the filter off of this Christmas verse, see it for what it really is, because when we see it for really what it really is, it gives us insight to the darkness in our own life, and it shows us the hope of Jesus in the midst of difficulty. So I'm gonna give you three insights today about spiritual darkness that we find hope in the light of Jesus in this passage. Number one, write this down if you're taking notes. I want you to see that this world is broken and in spiritual darkness because of sin. This world is broken and in spiritual darkness because of sin. Now, the backdrop of, of Isaiah chapter nine, this great verse about uh, the hope of Jesus coming into the world, this child that's gonna be born, 
It is rooted in the context of Isaiah chapter eight. Now let me set the table for you. Isaiah chapter eight, Isaiah is prophesying about the destruction that's coming to God's people. Uh, for eight chapters, he's showing the people they have rebelled against God. They have worshiped idols. They have not followed the law of the Lord and they've walked in arrogance and disregard. And Isaiah is telling the people, listen, your sin has consequences. You can't rebel against God's law and God's design for life and expect life to work out okay. And he's telling them God is gonna bring judgment. In fact, he tells them at the very uh, end of this in chapter eight that there is the, the, the Assyrian army, the enemy of God, this mighty world power is about to invade and they're gonna conquer God's people, Israel. And this, this, this war that's about to be fought and that they're going to lose and the Syrians are gonna win this is because of their rebellion and because of their sin. So they're about to experience brokenness and darkness. And it's a consequence of their sin. I want you to look at chapter eight, if you would. You can flip back a page. Chapter eight, verse 21. Listen to what the prophet says is coming. He says, they will pass through the land. This is the, the enemy. Greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged, and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God, and turn their faces upward. Listen to verse 22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness and gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Now, that's not a very hopeful future, is it? And why is this gonna happen to God's people? Because of brokenness and spiritual darkness as a byproduct of sin. And I think it's important that we understand the context of this and understand the brokenness and the spiritual darkness because of sin, because that's the circumstances that we find ourselves in today. You need to know this morning that the brokenness of this world, the, the darkness that we experience, can we all agree that the world is broken, by the way? Can we at least agree on that? Can we agree that there's darkness in our world? Like, just turn on the television for five minutes and you're gonna see and hear stories of just utter despair and brokenness, shattered lives and, and, and all kinds of anguish that people are going through. And here's the question we've gotta ask. What's the root cause of all of this? Like, what's the source of the brokenness? And here's what you discover as you open God's word. You discover that the root cause of the brokenness and the darkness of this world is the sin of humanity. You see, in, in, in Isaiah chapter nine, the people are experiencing this darkness and there's gonna be hope, but that hope comes from them understanding the seriousness of their sin and the rebellion toward God and its effect in their life. Like, we've gotta come to the realization, I just right here for a second. You can't live life on your own terms and expect God to bless it. You can't just live your life and go, okay, God, I know you say, but I feel and I think, and this is what I really, you know, I've heard this is the right path. I know it's different, but it's all gonna be okay. And I'm gonna take this path. Listen, it's not gonna be okay. And God will not bless it. In fact, sin leads to consequences. And watch this. The consequences of sin is God's way of showing us that his way is better. So we've got to recognize this morning that the brokenness that we experience daily, the darkness that's all around us, it's not just merely situational, it's spiritual darkness. And it's a byproduct of sin. You say, where did this come from? Well, if you go back into 
Uh, Genesis chapter one, two, and three, what do you see? God is ruling planet Earth. Humanity is created to have a relationship with him and all is well. This relationship between God and man is as it should be because Adam and Eve, they're living in submission to him. But the moment they rebel, what happens? Darkness enters the equation. Brokenness enters the world. And immediately, everything is fractured. Man, uh, humanity's relationship with God is fractured. Humanity's relationship with each other is fractured. The world is fractured. Everything is broken. So when you think about disease and divorce and famine and war and, and uh, all of the things that we see in our world around us that makes our hearts ache because of what people are going through, listen, it can all be traced back to the rebellion of humanity. Sin has consequences. And just get the mental image of this. The image is this, is that they've rebelled. Now watch the story in Isaiah. And because they've rebelled, the enemy is going to invade and going to conquer the land. And this is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden when humanity decided to rebel against God. Adam and Eve said, "We our way is better than God's way. We're going to do our thing. And the moment that happened, here's what the scripture tells us, that the, that the kingdom of darkness invaded planet Earth. And the kingdom of darkness has been wreaking havoc in the life of humanity ever since that moment. Now, I want, I want you to hear me say this. The brokenness that you experience in your life is the byproduct of sin. All of it is. Every bit of despair in your life is, has been caused by the brokenness because of sin. Now, it doesn't mean it's necessarily the sin you've committed, although there are times we gotta be honest and own what's ours. Like a lot of the stuff that we blame God for, God's going, really, you're blaming me for that? I told you that was a dumb decision. I even gave you a book that if you'll just look at it, it told you, dumb decision. And you're gonna blame me because of your messed up life? But then there are times when because of brokenness, generally, it's other people's sin that has consequences in our life. You say, well, that's not fair. That's the byproduct of when you rebel against God. We as a human race decided we want our path. And now not only does my sin affect me, your sin affects me, and my sin affects you. Now, why is it so important that we see this? And here's why. It's because if you view the brokenness and the darkness of this world as merely situational, then you're gonna spin your wheels trying to find the solution in different situations. If you think the brokenness of this world and the darkness that you experience is just merely relational, then what you're gonna do is you're gonna look for different relationships thinking that's the solution and what you're gonna find, brokenness lives there too. You following me? If you think the solution of, of the problems of the world is political, oh, we just need a different president or a different political party or different people leading, maybe even a different system of governance. And here's what you're gonna find. Historically speaking, there's never been a government on planet Earth established, led by humanity that ultimately wasn't corrupt and broken. You know why? The problem fundamentally is not a political problem. It is a spiritual problem. And see, when we begin to understand that the brokenness in our life and the spiritual darkness in our life isn't just relational, political, and even physical, it is a very real spiritual brokenness and darkness. Here's why that's important. You stop looking for yourself and others to be the solution because when you recognize it's supernatural, you need a supernatural answer to supernatural problems. 
if the problem is spiritual, then I need divine intervention, amen? That's when hope begins to rise up. When we stop looking at ourselves and the world around us and begin to say, you know what? Maybe, maybe there's a better way and that way comes outside of me, which leads me to number two. This is the answer and the hope. So see that the world is broken and spiritual darkness is here because of sin. But here's number two. This is beautiful. Jesus came to step into that darkness. Like that's why Jesus came. That the heartbeat of Christmas, the heartbeat of the gospel is Jesus going, yes, it's broken, but I've come to fix it. I want you to look what happens here in verse one. So remember verse chapter eight ends with what? These people are gonna live in anguish and gloom. Remember those words? I want you to listen to chapter nine, verse one. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt, now listen to this land, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, but in the later time he has made glorious, now listen to the geographical description, this is gonna make sense in a minute, the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now what's, what's going on here? First of all, I want you to see the great divine intervention here. Chapter eight, what does he say? Gloom and anguish is coming. The Assyrians are coming. And then chapter nine, he breaks in with grace and hope, but the land that was in anguish and was in gloom, they're gonna have glory and joy. There's latter times of judgment and suffering, but there's gonna be new days ahead of great deliverance and hope and victory. There's a contrast here. He's showing us sin has its effect, but Jesus came to step into the sin to bring hope and redemption. Now, why does Isaiah, in this prophecy, get so specific, specific about a strip of real estate? So here's, here's why. Um, when he says here, in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, then he goes on to say, uh, the way by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So he's describing the northern portion of Israel, specifically the Galilean region. And so why is this important? This was a gateway into the nation of Israel. And here's what I mean. That little small, very narrow strip of real estate, to the left you have the sea, to the right you have a range of mountains. So every time there was an invading army that was gonna come into Israel to destroy and take over, that one little small slice of real estate, the invading army would come through every single time. And they would come into this very small window, very narrow area, and they would march through. And as they marched through this land, the Galilee by the sea, that region, it would be utterly destroyed. Their property would be burned. Their possessions would be stolen. Their families would be killed. Their daughters would be kidnapped. And they would come in and they would do what they were gonna do in the heart of the land. And as they walked out, guess where they would have to pass through? That same region again. This is a strip of real estate that Isaiah is describing in the, in the history of Israel that have, been, have known more defeat and more destruction and more darkness and more gloom and more anguish than we can imagine. Every major battle that Israel fought, that place would have been destroyed. 
Every time an army came, those people would have everything taken away. And then just when they would build their lives back and get comfortable again and just have the memory of the generations lost, another army would come in and they would demolish them and wipe them out. And this was on repeat over and over and over again. And Isaiah specifically says here, in that location, in that place, there's gonna be hope when Christ comes. I'm gonna show you what I mean by this. Why does he get so specific with that prophecy? I want you to look at Matthew chapter four. You have to turn there, it'll be on the screen. Matthew chapter four, this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Listen to the description Matthew gives, and then he's gonna give you why He gives this description. Look what he says, verse 12. He says, now when he heard that John had been arrested, this is Jesus, that John had been arrested, he withdrew into where? Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, which is in the Galilean region, which is the hometown of Jesus, he went and he lived in Capernaum by the sea. So this is in the Galilean region, the region that Isaiah just described. In the territory of where? Zebulun and Naphtali, the very location that Isaiah prophesied about, Jesus is going there. And he does this for a reason, verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter nine might be fulfilled. And then he gives the quotations. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. You realize that Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. In this region, this broken, busted, historically devastated strip of real estate. And when his ministry started, Jesus goes to Galilee and to Capernaum, and that began to be ground zero for the ministry of Jesus. That's where Jesus did almost all of his miracles. That's where Jesus preached almost all of his messages. The greatest work that Jesus did in his earthly ministry happened in this busted, broken, dark region, and it came to the people who thought that God had forgotten them. This message of hope came to those who needed hope the most. I think this is powerful, that Jesus begins his earthly ministry, not just in Israel in general, but he goes to the broken down and defeated, the heart, most heart-wrenching place in all of the Bible. That is where Jesus set up shop for his ministry. So here's the question, why did he start here? He didn't have to, right? You gotta understand that. Jesus didn't have to go there. Because if Jesus could have have declared to go anywhere, right? Like Jesus could have chosen anywhere, places that were more prominent, places that he would have gotten more publicity, places where where, where there was was this sense of, of, of prosperity. Jesus could have gone to those locations, but he didn't. Now think about this for a minute. Jesus could have gone to Jerusalem. Could he have not? Now think about this, he, he starts his ministry And the the very heart of the nation of Israel is what? The the city of Jerusalem. The temple is there. 
Jesus could have said, you know what, that's where it's gonna be. I'm gonna go to this place and I'm gonna go take over the temple and I'm gonna display my glory in this glorious city, in this glorious place, these glorious people, and it's all gonna be amazing and they're gonna see me. Jesus also could have gone to Rome, could he have not? Like he didn't have to come as a baby. I hope we understand that. Like Jesus could have busted through the sky on the warrior's host, a horse with a, a host of angels with a sword in his hand and he could have rode straight to Rome and stepped into the palace and looked at Caesar and said, your day is done. He could have done that, right? You think that would have made front page news? Absolutely. Roman times. The big fight wasn't much of a fight Caesar says Jesus is Lord. But he didn't do that. Why? Because Jesus choosing this strip of real estate and choosing to live among these people, he was making a declaration. Listen to what the declaration is. Isaiah chapter nine, verse two. Listen to this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Because Jesus, listen, Jesus didn't come for the powerful. He didn't come for the prestigious. He didn't come for the popular. He came for the broken, the weak, the sick, the defeated, the desperate, the lonely. He came for the lost, the hurting, the burdened, the blind, and the powerless. That's who he came for. So that those who were living, that's one of this. He says, those who walked in darkness. What does walk imply? Life. I lived in darkness. I lived in brokenness. It wasn't a part of my life. It was my life. On them, a light has appeared. Jesus is making a declaration. I didn't come for the Instagram version of you. Look at me for a second. He didn't come for the Instagram version of you. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? The social media facade, the filters. Like I do videos for my kids' sports and one of the things that I do is I take the highlights of their game and I showcase them. I don't take the low moments of the game. We scored 14 points, but we had nine turnovers. Guess what didn't make the highlight video? So what do we do in the highlight video? We take a, a snapshot of the good parts and we leave the bad stuff out because we don't want people to see the bad stuff. That's what we do. But we do this, we, we project ourselves. we got it together and we've got life you know, in our hands and everything is going well. We put the filter out there. How many of y'all, listen, there's this new thing. It's probably not as new as I think it is, but be real. All right, be real, Hand, hands up, be real. If you have be real, all right, raise your hand. Raise, come on, raise your hand. Some of y'all are lying in church, you're not being real. I know there are more of you because I've looked at my daughter's account. And there are some of you that have it and you're lying right now. Now here's what's amazing about even the scenario playing out in this place. What is Be Real about? Be Real is supposed to be the social media platform where you can be real. So it sends you this moment where you gotta take a picture of yourself wherever you are, whatever you look like, whatever you're doing, and you take that picture and you post on being real. Except the problem is I've seen people do this and they take 14 pictures of themselves trying to be real. <laughs> and I've asked, I've asked my kids, are y'all gonna post that? No, I don't like what I'm wearing. I'm like, then you're not being real. Like I thought that's the point. 
we can't even pretend to be real. And here's why. Everything in this world says you gotta clean up, fix up, make up, and that's not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, if you're not a believer in this place, I want you to know the, the, the heart of the Christian life isn't do better, try harder. The message of the gospel is you can't, but Jesus did. And he came for the broken and the weak. He came for the pictures of your Christmas cards that you would never put in the Christmas card. Jesus says, you know, when I come to planet Earth to redeem the world, you know where I'm gonna start? I'm gonna start in the most desperate place with the most desperate people. And I'm gonna show humanity. That's why I came. See, the gospel, that's why it's, so, it's such good news. The word gospel means good news. It's the good news that though you can't and though you're not and though you could never be, Jesus was for you. That's what he came for. Here's the third truth, and this is where the hope comes really alive. Last truth is this. Jesus brings ultimate victory over darkness. Jesus brings ultimate victory over over our darkness, and this is, uh, this is stated clearly here, and I want you to see this. He says in verses one and two, hey, there was gloom and there was uh, anguish, but now there's gonna be joy and there's gonna be glory. That's the trade-off. How? Because the people living in darkness, they've seen a great light. Now, when the light shows up, what is he gonna do? That's what Isaiah tells us in the next verse, verse three. He says, and he's just talking about them. And I want you to follow the language. Like when we read the Bible, look, look at me for a second before you go read the Bible, all right? Look at me. Read it. Listen to the language. Listen to the wording. Because you're gonna see some beautiful things here. Listen to what Isaiah says about Jesus. He says, talking, talking about Jesus rather, he says, you have multiplied the nation. Now, what's the key word? Have 700 years before Jesus arrives, listen to the language. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoils. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, Tumult, every garment rolled in blood, listen to this, will be, future, will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, notice this. Isaiah is prophesying about what would happen when Jesus arrived as if it's already happened. And can I tell you, that's hope. Biblical hope is not what I see and what I feel. It's a confidence and assurance of what will take place as if it's already taken place. So Isaiah is going, hey, in the moment, gloom and anguish, but this is all going to come to an end. The darkness is going to be defeated. Now listen to the language again. He, he talks about this victory that will be theirs. 
And what he's saying is upon the arrival of Jesus, upon the arrival of the Messiah, this one that we celebrate the birth of this holiday season, upon his arrival, he ushered in a sure and a quick and a certain victory over the kingdom of darkness. And there is a new kingdom, which the New Testament calls the kingdom of light. It's gonna take its place. And and I love the the picture he gives. What is this gonna look like? Well, Isaiah gives an illustration. He says, as in the day of Midian here. Now, what in the world is that about? Everybody in the Old Testament, when they received this, they would have known the battle of Midian. So what's the battle of Midian? Uh, There was a judge. A judge was a, a warrior leader in the nation of Israel in the early days when they entered the promised land. And there was a judge by the name of Gideon. Gideon was a coward, uh, was scared of his own shadow, but God was gonna use him to be a courageous warrior. He never really got the courage, but God used him anyway. And the story goes like this. The army of the, of, of the enemy, the enemy has an army and they're gonna come in. The army is more powerful than God's people. There's no way they can defeat them. And so Gideon gets word, he's paranoid. He's, he's like, what in the world are you doing, God? And God's like, I'm about to raise you up. And so if you know the story, you know that he tells Gideon, I want you to get an army together and you're gonna go fight the enemy. So he gets his army together and God goes, army's too big. You gotta downsize. Now that, that didn't make, make sense, right? Because if you want the biggest army, if you're gonna have victory. No, their army is massive. Our army is not even close to is the size of theirs. And God said, it's still too big. And through a process of elimination, he narrowed it down to three hundred soldiers. Now, here's the misunderstanding, I think, of this passage. People will say, you know what God was doing? He was trying to get the best of the best. He would rather take 300 warriors than 1,500 people that that were not ready to fight. No, no, no. I don't believe that the 300 were the best fighters. You know why? The whole story is not about God choosing mighty men. It's about God using weak men. So here Gideon is, this massive army He now has 300 guys that he knows there's no way. And then God tells him, here's how you're gonna fight the enemy. You're gonna go at night in the darkness. You're gonna surround the camp. But when you go into the camp, here's what you're gonna take. Okay, we're gonna take our sword. No, you're gonna take a torch and a bowl. You're gonna surround the enemy and then All at once, in the middle of the night, in the midst of the darkness, you're gonna shatter the bowl and the light is gonna shine and you're gonna give a shout and when you do, I'm gonna show up. And what do they do? They surround the camp in the middle of the night. They're sleeping, pitch dark. All of a sudden, they break the bowls. The light shines, they give the shout and God causes a great confusion and the terror of the night, the light broke in and the army, the enemy of God gets up. They turn their sword on one another because of the chaos and they defeat themselves at their own sword. God's people never have to fight. Isaiah is saying, that is exactly what it's going to be like when Jesus shows up on the scene. In the dark of night, the enemy thinks he's in control. God shows up in a way that no one expected. The light breaks into the darkness. The enemy hits the panic button, and here's what the enemy did. Jesus shows up, the enemy freaks out, and what does he do? We gotta put Jesus to death, and they strike Jesus by putting him on a cross, and in striking Jesus, the enemy actually gave a death blow to themselves. 
Because in the crucifixion of Jesus, the power of the enemy, sin and death, was dealt with in Christ. Three days later, he resurrected, having victory over death, hell, and the grave, which means that the enemy, the kingdom of darkness, was once and for all defeated, and they were defeated because they gave a death blow, and in that, they put an end to themselves. This is beautiful. And what that means for you and me is that because the enemy has been defeated, has been defeated, we no longer have to live under the tyranny of the brokenness of this world. We no longer have to live in the chains of the darkness. We no longer have to live in the fear of, of the, the future. We can now have hope in the midst of the dark because the light has come. He has defeated the darkness. Now, watch this. That doesn't mean all the darkness has gone. Would we agree with that? Because what you have in this passage is what we call an already but not yet. Already but not yet. Here's what I mean. It's already a victory because Jesus has once and for all broken and defeated and has now rendered helpless and powerless the kingdom of darkness in his death, burial, and resurrection. But it doesn't mean that there's not little battles of darkness that we fight as we navigate through this world. But there is coming a day when King Jesus returns and once and for all, the already but not yet, the not yet will become already. And in that day, Jesus will reign victoriously. And I love the description here. You say, how do you know? When the already but not yet, listen to the not yet, verse five. He says, for every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, listen to this, will be burned as fuel for the fire. He's saying he's gonna usher in victory and then there's coming a day when there will never be a need for another sword or a weapon of warfare. There's a day coming when all the garments that have been soiled with the blood of war they're gonna be rolled up and tossed into the fire. Every army of the enemy, kingdom of darkness that have stood in opposition, they will be cast into what's called in the Revelation as the lake of fire. And then peace. And Jesus Christ will reign. Say, how does he do this? Now we get to verse six. For unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given. Now listen to the phrases here. And the government, the kingdom, and the government will be upon his shoulders. You know why the government's gonna be on his shoulders? Because finally we have a king who has shoulders that are big enough and a back that's strong enough to carry him. This world has never seen a king or a president or a ruler that has shoulders big enough to carry the kingdom. That's why kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. That's why kingdoms fail. We have a king who can withstand the weight of responsibility. What is this king gonna be like? His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. 
mighty God. He's strong. Our king is not just a man. He is the God man. An everlasting father, which means he's the dad that doesn't go away. He's a king that can fight, and he's a father that can love. And he'll be called the Prince of Peace. He'll usher in peace and light. And then I love this, how long will his kingdom last? Look what it says here. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. It's lasting forever. Now here's the question. Can we trust this? Is there really hope in the dark? Listen to the last phrase. He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What does zeal mean? Passion, the resolve. He says, everything that I've said, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So look at me for a second. I know that you're gonna go through hard times in your life. You're gonna hear things from a doctor you never wanted to hear. You're gonna experience loss in your life you never dreamed of losing. You're gonna stand next to the casket you never wanted to stand next to. There's gonna be days when you don't know what tomorrow holds, but here's what I want you to anchor your life in. The seal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There is hope in the dark. And you can bank your life and joy and courage and eternity on it. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Sometimes you don't feel like he will. I wanna remind you the story of me with my dad. One of the things that was interesting about me sitting there scared to death in the dark and I would see his light and the moment I got a glimpse of the light, the darkness didn't go away, but my fear started to leave. And the closer he got, the more my heart would rest and then he would be there. He'd say, it's time to go. And the woods that I was so terrified of just moments earlier, because my dad was there and he had the light. I was with him, I was in the light with him. There was no more fear, no more uncertainty, why? Because I knew I was with him, he was with me. And as long as we were together in this light, that nothing, though it might frighten me, could harm me. I want you to hear me say this. Jesus enters into your life, it's not as if the suffering goes away, the pain goes away, and even at times the fear goes away. But all of a sudden, when you're standing, you're like, I don't have to be afraid. 
of the dark. I don't have to be afraid of the unknown. I don't have to be afraid of the next step. Why? Because I'm in the light and my father's with me and I'm with him and he's my defender and he's my protector. And so while all the light, because we're walking, one thing I know is for certain, we're gonna get to the vehicle and all of a sudden then darkness will be gone. And every step of the way, I knew it was gonna be okay. And that's the hope that we have in Christ. I know for some of you this morning, you're going through some things. For some of you, the holidays are hard. Seasons are discouraging. And I want you to know there's hope in the dark, amen? So here's how we're gonna respond this morning. I'm gonna ask our prayer encouragers to go ahead and get available. I wanna do something. I wanna wanna really challenge us this morning to not allow us to nod our heads and say amen and even shed a few tears of belief in this, we, we gotta do something about it. Does that make sense? You gotta do something about it. You can't just go, okay, yeah, life is hard or I've got some things in my life and okay, I know God's gonna get me through. No, he, he wants to meet you right now. Like it's hope now, not hope later on. How many of you would just raise your hand this morning and say, hey, there's some areas, could be big, could be small. There are areas of uncertainty, areas of darkness in my life, and I really could use God to be at work in this in my life. Just raise your hand for a second, raise raise it real high. Now look around the room, you're not alone. So here's the question, why would you raise your hand and then sit in a seat and not let someone pray for you and to take it to the God that we just said we believe he could do something about it? Church is not about hearing a message and taking notes and singing some songs. Church, fundamentally, we gather to meet with God. And you haven't had church until you meet with Him. So if you raise your hand, hey, won't you leave your seat in a moment and come and say, hey, I need Jesus to invade this area. And you can tell them or not tell them. Just say, I got got stuff. I need Jesus to come through. Or this is the thing, I need Jesus to come through. Maybe you're gonna come kneel at the altar. Others of you in this room, maybe you're uncertain about your relationship with God and today reminded you of what Jesus has done for you and you need to trust him for the very first time as your Lord and Savior. You need to come to an end of yourself and embrace him as your Lord and Savior. I want you to realize this is a moment for us to meet with God. Don't miss the moment. Jesus, I love you. And I'm asking in the name of Jesus that you would work over the next few minutes in our hearts and lives. I I pray there would be a freedom in this place not to just go, yeah, I got stuff and then move on, but to actually realize you're in this room, you're in this space and the God of hope is here and we can bring our stuff to him. God, I love you and I'm asking you to do this in Jesus' name.